Back in November of 2017, the CEO of Netflix announced that it was making great progress against its number one competitor. And that claim caused a lot of people, including myself, perhaps you even now, to ask the question, what is Netflix's greatest competitor? Is it Prime Video, or Hulu, or HBO, or Paramount, or any other of these streaming platforms? Well, that's not what the CEO was talking about at all. In fact, what he said was that Netflix was making incredible progress against its number one competitor, your sleep. Netflix saw itself as marketing to take away your sleep by encouraging things like binge watching, uh, allowing very little space in between shows to keep you behind the screen for longer periods of time. And this is just part of, I think, our culture, technology, consumeristic mentalities, things like social media and other big tech companies. They're built with algorithms to capture our attention, to draw us in and to keep us there as long as possible. Well, in a culture or a world like this, things like religion can seem like another thing to give your attention to. Uh, things like religion can seem like just another thing to subscribe to, with a certain amount of requirements to follow. But is that really the idea that the Bible teaches? What does the Lord require of us? If you were to just boil it down to one main thing, what would you say? Well, as it turns out in our passage this morning, a scribe comes up to Jesus and asks him what the most important commandment is. I think you will be interested to hear his answer. Turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12, verse 28. Mark 12, and we're going to be looking at verses 28 through 34 this morning. And if you're using the Bibles underneath the chairs, you'll find today's passage on page 848. 848. Uh, and if you're new to using the Bible, then just know that the first number is the chapter number. Those are large inside the paragraphs. Uh, so Mark 12 is the big 12, and then you'll see little, little numbers throughout the paragraphs. Those are verse numbers for reference. So we're on Mark 12, verse 28 through 34 on page 848. Uh, and let me just say, if, if you are visiting and you don't have a Bible at home, a personal Bible that you can read, uh, then just feel free to take one of the ones underneath our chairs as our gift to you. We would love for you to have your own personal copy of God's words. We believe he has spoken to us through it, that it is without error in everything that it intends, and therefore that it is authoritative for us. Uh, so we would love nothing more than for you to have your own copy of God's word. Well, it's been a few weeks since we uh, have been in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, so let me just remind you about what has been going on lately in the book so far. The entire Gospel is the account of the life and ministry of Jesus. The first half of the book is basically answering the question, who is Jesus? And the second half is basically answering the question, what did he come to do? Uh, those are the main breakdowns. But in chapter eight, there's a crucial turning point. Peter confesses, rightly, who Jesus is, that he is the Christ, the Messiah. And then from that point, Jesus predicts what he's going to do three times in three chapters. He predicts his death and his resurrection. And, and those middle chapters, chapters 8 through 10, act like a bridge between those two questions, who is Jesus 
And what did he come to do? It's, a, it's the person and the work of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. So we're still in the final week of Jesus' life. After Peter made that statement, Jesus and company have journeyed to Jerusalem where his prediction would occur, his death and resurrection. So now they're in the final week of his life. It's notably Passover week in the city of Jerusalem. And his time in Jerusalem has been pretty exciting, I would say. He has gone to the temple multiple times. He's proclaimed judgments against the religious leaders of the temple. And Jesus has undergone a fierce cross-examination uh, over his ministry by various parties. His actual trial has not begun yet, but depositions against Jesus uh, have started. Various groups like priests, chief priests, scribes, Herodians, Pharisees, all have tried to trap him in his talk. Uh, so they ask him questions not with any kind of sincerity or interested, interest in knowing what he has to teach, but mainly to find a way to destroy him. Uh, they have questioned his authority, his civil obedience, his theology, uh, all in just a few days. Uh, in fact, those three things in one specific day, it seems. Well, our passage this morning, these waves of opposition ease to a calm with the last person to ask the question of Jesus. Well, let's read our text now to see what happens. Mark 12, 28 through 34. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he, that's Jesus, answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him, and to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. So after so much confrontation and hostility, a bystander, likely listening to each of the conversations I mentioned previously, comes to Jesus to ask a question of his own. And then this time, as I mentioned, he doesn't come with the same kind of malicious intent as the others do. Mark tells us in the first verse, verse 28, that after hearing them disputing with one another, he saw that Jesus actually had really good answers, compelling answers. It says Jesus answered them well, which I think is a little bit of an understatement from Mark. Mark is summarizing this event. But Jesus has not just answered them well, he's completely stopped them in their tracks. He's repeatedly put them in kind of a, a verbal checkmate with them unable to respond. It's just a very small glimpse into the wisdom of God and the authority by which all mouths will be shut and tongues silence at the end of time. It's another reminder for us that the life and the mission of Jesus 
is a part of the overarching plan of God before all time, which no man, no matter how powerful or wise or strong, can prevent from happening. This scribe recognizes that from Jesus comes true, true wisdom and true authority. And therefore, he decides to ask him this question about the commandments. Uh, we do this with prominent people, don't we? Someone of influence comes through, and we want to know what they think about an issue. Uh, typically, we love hearing hot takes on things, even if the person uh, is not an expert in a particular area. Uh, but in this case, the scribe, it is the scribe's area of expertise. And Jesus claiming that the Messiah should also be an expert in this, in this particular category as well. Scribes, just to remind you, scribes were the uh, intellectual elite of the Jews. They were lawyers for them. They're experts in the law. Their job was to study the law, to know it, and to apply it to the people. So uh, this is not an untrained person, theologically, asking Jesus a question. A scribe in Jerusalem would be something like uh, a professor at Harvard for us today. This, this person has received the highest possible education and is now employed by the highest uh, or most elite institution available. And the main idea of this passage can be drawn from Jesus' answer. And the main idea is that God's identity requires us to love God and others with everything we have. God's identity requires us to love God and others with everything we have. And I'm going to walk through this passage just under those two headings. Love God and love others. So first, first point, love God. The question he asked Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all, uh, is a bit of a superlative, uh, and we love asking superlative questions. I found in my own life it's actually hard. I have to train myself not to ask superlatives when I'm getting to know someone. I want to know what your favorite sports team is, what your favorite movie is, what your favorite book is, all these things. Uh, <laughs> but, but this scribe, asks a question that would have been a typical question or even an area of debate among other scribes. Uh, why do I say that? Well, not only because his vocation required it, but because there are a ridiculous amount of commands in the Old Testament, in the Torah specifically. And the scribes actually know how many there are. And if you're curious, there's 613. 613 different commands. But they do vary, it seems, in degree of importance. And that's obvious when you just look at the punishment for various commands. The more severe the punishment, for example, uh, the greater the transgression, and therefore the greater the commandment. That and some commandments are nestled under others category, categorically. But by that time, in Jesus' life, we also see examples in history of others trying to provide a kind of summary of the Old Testament or of the law itself. So we often think of Micah 6, 8, which says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Or back at 2, verse 4, The righteous shall live by faith. It's <coughs> a good summary. Just do that, and you'll obey all the commands. If asked this question today, uh, I think many people would say that Jesus thinks perhaps maybe the golden rule is the most important. As Jesus teaches in Matthew 7, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. 
for this is the law and the prophets. As it turns out, there was a rabbi about 20 years prior, before Jesus, who gave what people call the silver rule. And it's basically the golden rule, but put in negative terms. Meaning, what you don't want done to you, don't do to other people. It's quite simple. And after he says that, he concludes by saying, this is the essence of the law, everything else is just an explanation of it. Go and learn. Well, that's what this scribe is asking. He wants to know what Jesus says to this question about the most important commandment. He's asking for the main principle of the law under which every other command sits. And Jesus begins, before answering the question, by quoting something called the Shema. The Shema. The Shema is perhaps the most popular, well-known Hebrew verse in the Hebrew Bible. And it's called the Shema because uh, the Shema is the word that means here. It's the first word of the verse. Uh, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 6.4 so you can read what Jesus quotes here. Deuteronomy 6.4. And this is on page 151 if you're using one of the black Bibles. Religious Jew Jews quoted this verse at least twice a day if they were devout. Uh, because it was such an important tenet of their faith. And Jesus uses this verse in a similar way, not to answer his question directly, though he gets there, but verse 4 specifically as grounds for his answer. And that's how verse Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, and verse 5 function grammatically. Uh, you'll see that there's basically an implied therefore in between the two verses. So read with me Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, therefore, verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So to summarize, you are to love the Lord with your whole being, everything you have. And we are to love God this way, not to earn his favor or to gain salvation, but simply because he is the Lord. He is the only God. It means he is the one true God. The most important command is grounded in who God is, not what we get from Him. It's a response to God's identity as the only God. And notice, if you break this command, to break it is to take something that is not God and to put it in the place of God. So there are false gods, and those are things that people typically worship in the place of the one true God. Uh, we can learn just from the context of where the Shema sits in Deuteronomy. If you look just over the page to chapter 5, uh, you'll notice that there is a rehearsal of the Ten Commandments. Uh, this is a rehearsal of the law before Israel enters into the land. And then chapter 6, Deuteronomy 6, verse 2, says they are to keep all the statutes and commands for all the days of their lives. So the Shema, Jesus' understanding of it, is that people are to seek to obey God in every facet of their lives, to the best of their ability, for their entire lives. It's quite a high call, isn't it? Uh, it goes against, I think, common misconceptions about what it means to be a believer or a Christian if we apply it to ourselves. And what I mean by that is we tend to think there are categories, right, or levels of Christians. You have normal Christians who basically, they go to church and they believe the Bible. And that's pretty much it. Their life doesn't look a whole lot different from, you know, if they were to believe something else. And then there are the Jesus freaks 
who uh, do that, but they're also much more active in evangelizing friends and coworkers. They get into apologetical type of arguments. They're much more vocal about their faith. And then there are the super committed Christians, uh, those like me who study theology, whose job it is to talk about the Bible. And then there are the, there are the elite, the special forces of Christianity that leave everything to go overseas to an unreached people group to share the gospel. That's typically how we think about Christians in the world. But that idea is not found anywhere in Scripture. Um, across all of Scripture, full obedience is expected from all of God's people. Whatever that might look like. Uh, there's no such thing as super Christians or regular Christians. Uh, God has given specific kinds of gifts to specific people. Uh, that's clear. He gives gifts to the church as well. Uh, elders and teachers being one of them. But all believers, and really all mankind, is called to love God with all their heart, soul, and might. It's also helpful to note what Moses records after the Shema. So look at Deuteronomy 6, verse 6 and following. He says, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your head, on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The wordplay of heart, soul, and might uh, apply to Israel in this text. You teach what is important to you to your children. So the things that you love, you typically talk to about others and will teach to your kids. The soul is about inward passion. Uh, the things that you live for, what your life is about. And God says that God's command should be like frontlets between your eyes, meaning you see the whole world through these commandments, written on the doorposts of your house and gate. This, the city, your house, your passions, should have as their primary purpose obeying God's commands. And then your might, or your strength, the things that you do, with your hands. God command, God's commands should mark them. So everything you do should be driven by a desire to love God. The summary is that we should love God in everything we do, think, or feel. There shouldn't be an area of our lives that we give ourselves an excuse to not love God to the greatest extent that we are able. Back to Jesus in Mark 12. Jesus but semi-paraphrases this verse because he adds the mind to it. And by doing that, he's interpreting the law for us. Jesus includes our mental capacity as well as part of the command to love God to the fullest extent. So heart, soul, mind, and strength certainly do summarize everything we do, don't they? Uh, you can't think of anything that you do that doesn't touch on one of those things. I don't know about you, but the fact that Jesus says that this is the most important commandment is a little bit terrifying, isn't it? It's a little scary. If this is a summary of all of God's commands, everything God requires of us, and the most important thing that we do with our existence, do you see how just utterly short we fall from actually meeting this command? I'm not sure I have the ability to follow this command for five minutes, 
let alone my whole life. Uh, the times that I do, or at least attempt to, all my mental capacity, all my attention, all of my energy, all of my desire, all of my work, all of my words, all of my thoughts, I don't think I can last a few minutes without breaking the most important command. You see how, how far short we fall in our lives, uh, how frequently we fail to meet this command. Our lives are like broken records, skipping over and over and over again. Our intentions, no matter how good they are at times, dry up like a well over time. And that's typically what happens when we try. If this is what God requires of us, and this is the summary of the whole law, then we have failed to obey God's law as a whole completely. We have brought upon ourselves no less than the greatest punishment. This is why Paul says the wages of sin is death. Sin is not simply just a mistake, a wrongdoing. It is disobeying God's law and therefore rebelling against his rule as the one true God. Jesus has already spoken about discipleship in Mark's gospel in pretty extreme ways in that bridge, in the bridge chapters 8 through 10, as I mentioned. He said things like, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. He told the rich man to sell all his possessions and follow him. There is no category for someone who partially follows Christ in the Bible. The call to repentance and faith is one that beckons all people to run away from sin and give everything to Jesus, including, yes, your time, your money, your loyalty, your fidelity, your worship, your love. This command shows our great need for a Savior, doesn't it? And yet at the same time, while exposing the depth of sin in our lives, it also reveals God's love to forgive such a breaking of His commandments. One pastor wrote, The Gospel says you are simultaneously more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe. But my guess is you couldn't even begin to think of how often you've broken this commandment. I can't. The gospel says you're simultaneously more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe, yet more loved and accepted than you ever dared hope. We believe in Christ's love. Christ who gave his life so that we could be forgiven of our sins. My friend, if you have not trusted in Christ, your rebellion against God means that you, like all of us, deserve the wrath of God rightly. But God sent His Son in love to be the sacrifice or the substitution on our behalf so that we could be saved and forgiven of our sin and given eternal life. If you have never put your trust in Christ, consider doing that today. Let me just urge you. Jesus could have stopped right there in naming the first commandment, and He would have successfully shown just how short we all fall. He would have successfully shown our need for mercy. But that's not where he stops. His command is the same as when he says, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. But he includes a second command with him. To love our neighbor as ourselves. 
And that leads us to point two, love others. Love others. He includes this second command with his response, which the scribe didn't really ask for. He specifically asked for the greatest command, singular, and Jesus gives him two. And then he says, no command is greater than these. These two commands, they come together and they cannot be separated. The great commandment to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength can't be separated from loving others as well. Many have noted that Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 6 for the first command and then Leviticus 19 for the second command. 19 verse 18, I believe. Both of which are monumental chapters in the first five books, the Torah or the Pentateuch, as referred to by the Jews. Leviticus 19 specifically is a whole chapter dedicated to calling the people to be holy and then laying out a lot of rules specifically pertaining to how they're to relate to other human beings. They are to be holy because God is holy. And the reason given over and over again for each of these commands is, I am the Lord your God. So just like the first commandment, it's our obligation in response to who God is. The creator worthy of all glory and honor and obedience. The connection between these two commands is love. Now that's the word that's in both of them. That is what is so important in how we actually carry out seeking to obey these commands. Love for God and others is at the very core of what it means to be a Christian and what it means to obey God. They're the two commands under which every other command could be placed. Every other commandment is a matter of either loving God or loving others or both. The two are deeply connected. As the Apostle John stated, you cannot love God while hating a brother. You cannot love your neighbor and hate God. You must have both. Love for people flows downstream from love for God. This idea of loving God and loving others being inseparable is found all over the New Testament as well. Here are just a few verses. Paul understood this idea clearly, as he mentions it frequently, to various churches he writes to. In Romans 13, 9 and 10, he says, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. For Galatians 5, verse 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. One word is another way to say commandment. Uh, the Ten Commandments are often referred to as the Ten Words, by the way. One word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And after devoting an entire chapter to the Corinthian church about various gifts of the Spirit, he says that the greatest gift of all is love. He says that anyone who has prophecies or faith to move mountains or understanding for all the deep mysteries in life are nothing without love. We've already heard 1 John 4.10 in the service, but let me just quote the verses that surround verse 10. Verses 7 through 12 and then 20 through 21 say this. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, 
that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Jesus said himself elsewhere, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Believe it or not, there are many other verses that could be referred to, but I'll stop there for now. You get the idea. Christian, Christianity is not just uh, a religion of endless rules or restrictions. It's a religion of love, and not done to gain the favor of God, but in response to his identity and his character. We love because he first loved us. Obeying God's commands, therefore, are not about uh, following a set of rules, but about engaging in the heart. 1 Samuel 15, which we read earlier, God says that to obey is better than sacrifice. You can perform sacrifices without your heart engaged. But brothers and sisters, we are called to engage the heart in every facet of our lives. You may be wondering why I changed the language of my main idea and the points to love God and love others rather than love God and love neighbor. And I think it's a fair question to just ask, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor that the Bible speaks of? Does Jesus mean specifically the, the people who live next door to me? Who might speak another language? In, in my case, that's, that's true. Is he speaking about other Christians? That's certainly an emphasis in the New Testament. Jews would have understood neighbor to mean fellow Jew. So what does Jesus mean here? But listen to the way that God commands Israel to treat a stranger in the same chapter that Jesus quotes from, Leviticus 19. 19, verse 34. Jesus says, You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Couple that with the fact that Jesus interprets love for neighbor as love for enemies in Matthew 5. And then he even, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, identifies the Samaritan, who was a natural enemy of the Jews, as the true neighbor because of the kindness he showed to the man on the road. There is definitely a special emphasis in the Bible on how we as Christians are to love one another and treat other believers. But the idea of loving our neighbors as ourselves includes strangers and enemies. So how do you do loving your neighbors? Are there people in your life that you convince yourself are okay to not love? I want you to see something from the response of the scribe to Jesus' answer. In his answer, he shows that 
He came genuinely to learn, the scribe at least. He agrees with Jesus. He says he is right. And he goes even further to provide another important point for us, that no amount of sacrifice or religious observance of any kind compare to obeying all these commands. He says that to obey these two commands is to do much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Do you have any idea how many sacrifices Israel performed on a yearly basis? Uh, specifically, during Passover week, hundreds of thousands. This is what Jesus rebuked them for because of their bad business practices in, in selling sacrificial animals at higher prices in the temple. And Jesus gave us a clue there by saying that he's turned what should be a house of prayer into a den of robbers. Jesus is kind of referring to this idea that true worship comes from the heart, not from outward actions. Well, they're still at the temple in this conversation. And by the way, in case you were curious, there are lots of different kinds of sacrifices. You read through Leviticus, your head might spin by all the different kinds and the, the particular rules surrounding each one. Um, but I do want to just mention that whole offerings, specifically whole burnt offerings, are one of the most important that you read about. Uh, and the reason it's called a whole offering is because the entire body of the animal was to be burned up as opposed to other sacrifices in which a portion of the meat was to be eaten or a, a portion was to go to the priests. Whole burnt offerings were in a different category because typically they were the first sacrifice offered. It was the entire animal. They were sometimes given at nighttime and the reason was to keep the altar lit so that the fire was continually burning at all times and smoke was always rising from the altar. It was a sacrifice that specifically served the purpose of atoning for the sins of the Levites. And it's the first sacrifice given from an animal without any blemish. Okay. I have never met a single person, personally, who sacrifices animals still, religiously, and thinks that we still should. And I'm guessing you, you might be similar in that. Uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong after the service. I'd love to hear. Very curious. Um, so how do we apply something like this to ourselves? Well, the principle here is to recognize that Christianity and obeying God is not a mere matter of external observances. Christianity is not about doing things, whether that be sacrifices or coming to church or studying theology. It's not about avoiding doing certain things either, necessarily. I mentioned earlier the 613 commands. They've actually divided them up over... Uh, positive and negative commands. So there's 365 negative commands. You shall not do X. And then there are 248 positive commands. You shall do X. But Christianity is first and foremost a religion of the heart. Love is key, once again, in these verses. Sacrifices are meaningless if the heart's not engaged. They were given to Israel for a time to teach them for the need of holiness and atonement but true worship comes only from the heart. You can't fake a broken and a contrite heart, which David says in Psalm 51, pleases the Lord more than sacrifice. Jesus makes this kind of heart language clear in Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. He talks about the uh, thoughts and desires 
that grow into sins and manifest themselves in sins as being sinful in and of themselves. He says to hate is to commit murder, to lust is to commit adultery, because it's those desires that grow like seeds into full-grown, bad fruit-bearing trees. And Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for being hypocrites and prioritizing man-made traditions of washings over the commandments of God. It's that same kind of external observance in mind. What he said was that it's not what is outside that defiles us, but the things that come from inside of us that defile us. They come from within and enter it out into the world. From within, out of the heart of man, of evil thoughts, and they defile the person, Mark 7, 21 and 22. But Christianity is a religion of love, in which we respond to the one true God by loving him and others with all of our being. So brothers and sisters, when you think about your walk with Christ, do you think about it primarily as a life of love? When you come to church, do you come ready to express love and worship to God and towards other church members? Or do you come because you think church attendance pleases God and will earn you some kind of favor in the hope of uh, eventually outweighing your bad deeds with good deeds? Trust me, that won't happen, no matter how hard you try. And even if you were somehow miraculously able to outweigh your good deeds, that does not atone for the bad deeds. You would still be guilty of them. Do you ask intentional and spiritual questions of others? because they just ask you first and you feel obligated? Or do you ask these types of questions because you do care about how they're doing? Uh, you in love want to see them grow in their walk with the Lord? Are your prayers motivated by what you want out of God more than they are about simply spending time with God? It's interesting, one writer pointed out that Paul, in all of his prayers for other churches, never prayed for their circumstances to change. I don't think that's, it's necessarily bad to pray for a change of circumstances, uh, but it is just interesting uh, to point out that prayer is not simply uh, us asking of God. And we model this in our service, right, because we've got different categories, and I typically say something like, when it comes to the pastoral prayer, let's now make our supplications known, uh, let's ask of the Lord, let's make a request known, to separate it from the prayer of praise and the prayer of confession, where we're just specifically doing those things. Kids in the room, the Bible says that we are to obey our parents. We're not just to obey whenever we think that they're right in what they ask, but to, to obey because we love them, and to obey because we love God, primarily. The scribe responds more positively than any of his kind in the book so far. Jesus even commends him. And Mark tells us that the scribe's response was wise. And that's the reason Jesus tells him he's not far from the kingdom of God in verse 34. What can we learn from that? We can at least learn that a right understanding of God begins with acknowledging who he is rightly and understanding what he requires of us, to love him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love others as ourselves. This scribe understood that, and even agreed. 
But there is something bothersome about this story. And it's just the fact that we don't know what became of the scribe. Jesus says he's close, not far from the kingdom of God. But he hadn't yet reached the destination. We should be asking, what was this man lacking? What could he have done to ensure inclusion into the kingdom of God? The answer for him is the same as the answer for us today. Understanding the commands of God is not the same as obeying the commands of God. And it's not just understanding what the Lord requires of us. It's actually doing the commands of God. And what is abundantly clear from Jesus' summary of the law is that we are guilty of breaking the whole thing. We're not capable of keeping it. We're not holy as God commanded us to be holy. We're not perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. We're all guilty of breaking the greatest commandment. Not once, not twice, but probably thousands of times. And the scribe was standing across from the single person who through his entire life never broke these commands once. This is how amazing Jesus, the Son of God, is. In every moment of his life, he loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and he loved his neighbor as himself. He's the only one who can offer or who can stand in as the perfect sacrifice on our behalf. That's why he's able to atone for our breaking God's laws. In Jesus, we have the perfect model for what mankind was created to be and what mankind will be restored into. And it's because he loved God and others in this way that he willingly went to the cross for us. We see the perfect harmony of love for God and love for others in Jesus. In the way that he loved God enough to submit to his plan, even to death on a cross, and loved mankind enough to lay down his life for us. I've already said we could never hope to follow these commands. That we do them not to win favor, but in response to who God is. These commands reveal how deep our need for a Savior is. And it's only through Jesus that we can enter the kingdom of God. John Calvin said, No sin is so slight that it does not deserve death. But no sin is so great that it actually destroys the grace of God in our souls. And that's true of those who trust in Christ's work rather than our own. Uh, I've heard it said that Christianity is not a, work, a religion of do, it's a religion of done. Because it's not so much what we do that earns us favor, but what Christ did that gains the favor of God on our behalf. His righteousness is given to us if we trust in Him. If it were up to our obedience, we could never even hope to be good enough. But praise be to God, we can trust in the one who is. He turns these commands from a terrifying requirement into a joyful and lifelong endeavor purpose for our lives. So brothers and sisters, in everything you do, do to the glory of God. And remember, the entire law can be summed up in these two commands. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, you are the one true God. There is no other like you. And we give you praise for that this morning. 
We give you thanks for sending Jesus to do what we could never do. Obey you perfectly. Greater love has no one than this. And that someone lay down his life for his friends. And through Jesus, you have called us friends. That we were once enemies. Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But you have showed your great love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And it's in his precious name we pray. Amen.